Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. The best things in life are free. But you can give them to the birds and bees. I need From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. It's the Motley Fool Money radio show. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me this week, Ron Gross and Andy Cross. Good to see you, gentlemen. Hey, Chris. How are you doing, Chris? We've got the latest headlines from Wall Street. We'll talk about growing America's economy with journalist Matthew Iglesias. And as always, we've got a couple of stocks on our radar. But we begin with the big macro. We will get to the jobs report in a moment, but we have to start with the news that the President of the United States has tested positive for COVID-19. And because more details are coming out by the hour, let me also add that we are recording this at just after 12 noon on Friday. Ron Gross, I'm going to start with you. We've been doing this show for more than a decade. There are other shows that mix business and politics. We're not one of them. So anyone looking for the political ripple effects of this news, there are plenty of shows out there that they can listen to. We focus on investing and the stock market. And right now, with the S&P 500 down about 1% on Friday, the reaction from the market is not too bad, considering the president's health is compromised in a way that we haven't seen out of the presidency in a very long time. Yeah, a relatively muted response, which I, I don't think I'm surprised by. Um, we often say the market hates uncertainty, and this certainly does create uncertainty. Um, but you know, you have to really extrapolate some pretty morbid things into the future to become uh, panicked about this situation. Um, we certainly wish everyone well. Um, we don't know how this will turn out. But for today, for this market cycle, um, this day, tomorrow, the next uh, Monday's market, it's about some near-term uncertainty within the context of an incredible six months of uncertainty when you throw in the pandemic and the economy and the looming election. So, uh, are you doing anything as an investor as a result of this news? I think the answer is no. If you're a trader, maybe you're positioning yourself in certain ways and hedging in certain ways. But for the individual foolish investor, I never even would think of selling stock on a day like today, um, and I would treat it as a normal day. Yeah, I think interesting, Chris. Um, this might might ramp up this weekend's uh, negotiation between uh, Treasury Secretary Mnuchin and um, the uh, House Speaker Pelosi as they continue to negotiate around a, a job st or a stimulus bill uh, for for so many out, out there that are in need of, of help. And I think this might just again be more, more even more more of a signal for them to to continue to um, to realize that you know we're, we are in a very um, uh, fragile situation um, in the COVID case. Cases are continuing to ramp up across the country in certain spots, and so there's maybe a little bit more public scrutiny on that, uh, even when when someone like the president um, uh, uh, tests positive for for COVID. So, so I might see, I would not be surprised if I see even more further progress made on the deal talks. And, and while we may feel that the economy is reopening, and we'll talk about the jobs report in a minute, I think it's really important to remember that there are industries, there are sectors, there are individuals that are really hurting. Um, we saw Disney announce an incredible number of layoffs recently. The airlines are looking for stimulus, and they'll be laying off um, folks, have been and will be. Um, so, from an individual economic and an, just an individual people perspective, um, we've got some work to do here to support those that are still really hurting. The U.S. economy added 660,000 jobs in September. That is below what economists were expecting. The unemployment rate now sits at 
9%. So, Ron, it's going in the direction we want it to go, but it appears that the momentum is slowing. The momentum is slowing. That um, more all-encompassing unemployment number we look at sometimes called the U6 uh, showed a little bit of, of a better indication, dropping uh, for, to 14.2 from 14.8. Um, but still, you know, we, we've got a long way to go here, which is not surprising. The biggest drop um, in jobs was in government um, as at-home schooling continued and the census jobs fell. Interestingly, leisure and hospitality kind of led the way um, as things do reopen and people People do get back to work to a certain extent, um, but government, the biggest drag, economy needs to continue to reopen. We need stimulus. We need to support folks, as I said. Um, and over time, we'll see that hopefully that unemployment rate continue to go down. A number that I was looking at is the number of permanent job losses increased by 345,000 to 3.8 million. That's a seven-year high that compares to 2.5 million in February. So this is people who have been out of work for more than 27 months and looking for work. So that combined with some of the facts and numbers that Ron mentioned earlier with some of the large cap corporate uh, companies out there, companies out there now looking to pare back some of their workforce, the Disney, the airlines, all state, um, some of the Wall Street banks now. So I think there's just this concern that while the numbers were um, below expectations, the economy is in this very delicate spot. And whether it's new stimulus or just um, more and more growth, we're not seeing the consumer maybe ramp up and the consumer weakness that, that uh, was a real strength of the past couple months. Um, that's the concern with, I think, the economy. I think you'll see in that in the, st in the stock market. And in this job report, some of that data showed that, hey, listen, the economy really still is in this spot where it needs some help. And despite what we've been through, the stock market is not cheap, um, especially the NASDAQ, um, where we've seen incredible runs from some of these uh, technology companies, both the large cap and, and some of the, the mid cap ones as well. Um, and so, it, any shock to the system, any uncertainty will create a sell-off. I would imagine, I don't have it in front of me, that you're seeing a larger sell-off in the NASDAQ today than you are in the Dow, for example, or the S&P 500. So we need to be wary about the continuing uncertainty and any shock to the system that comes um, will affect the market. But you know, stick to your knitting, buy great companies, hold them for the long term. Let's move on to some of the big stock news of the week. Second quarter profits for Bed Bath & Beyond came in dramatically higher than expected. And for the first time in four years, same-store sales were positive. Shares of Bed Bath & Beyond up 40% this week. Uh, Ron, Mark Tritton's been the CEO for 11 months, and not only does it look like he is turning this business around, he's turning it around during a pandemic. Chris, as the A-team's Hannibal Smith famously said, I love it when a plan comes together. <laughs> and I say that as both a shareholder, and I know you're a shareholder as well, but... Let's not take victory laps just yet. We got a long way to go. Mark Tritton is doing a great job executing on his what he's calling the Omni Always transformation, which is you have a number of ways to reach the consumer and sell your products. But we've got a long way to go, especially in the stores, which let's face it, that is the big part of this turnaround, or certainly a big part of it. If we go through the numbers, total comp sales up six percent, as you said, first growth since the fourth quarter of fiscal 2016. The big story, strong growth in digital channels up about 89%. Now, that was offset by a 12% decline in the stores themselves. And that is important to note. We can't take victory laps. We can't gloss over that. There's a lot of work to do here. Um, 
Sales were down overall about 1%, um, decline in the stores, as we mentioned. Uh, a reason for that, sale of the one Kings Lane home decor unit, actually, um, which most people don't even realize happened earlier in the year. They sold it off a division. Um, but gross margins were up. Oper- operating expenses were down. It led to an adjusted EPS earnings per share increase of 47%. So things are looking good, but we've got a long way to go. Well, and one more thing to watch, um, earlier in the week before they came out with their earnings report, there was the announcement that they're partnering with Instacart and Shipt to provide same-day delivery. Um, it's going to be interesting to see what that does to move the needle for them, particularly with the holidays coming up. Yeah, very important. Again, executing on Triton's Omni Always transformation. Interesting shift is a wholly owned subsidiary of Target, um, which is which is an interesting partnership there. But the company's doing well. The restructuring's in place. They're looking for an increase in EBITDA of 250 to $350 million as a result of the restructuring. They're paying down debt. They just reduced it by about 30%. Um, so they're doing everything they need to do, making really smart moves. We're going to keep a close eye. Shares of Twilio up 12% on Friday after the cloud services company raised its forecast for the quarter. Twilio is scheduled to release its next earnings report in early November. Uh, Andy, safe to assume that the increase in remote working and remote education is helping them here? Yeah, it is, Chris. So it was at their Twilio Signal conference, and they kind of updated for investors. They had a, they had an investor day remotely to kind of give some more guidance. They updated that Q3 guidance um, ahead of for the revenue to be ahead of the 401 to 406 million they talked about last quarter. So they really talked about just they're continuing to expand their market. They're serving more and more people right now. Their market is somewhere about 60 billion. If their market size of the services they offer, and they expect that to go to 87 billion over the next few years. They're serving more than 200,000 clients. As you mentioned, Chris, the the market that they are serving now um, inside the the COVID pandemic and the world that we live in, um, they've done some surveys where 97% of the companies said that their digital strategy accelerated by six years. And one in three companies are now using live chat or integrated voice response systems um, than than were before. So, you're seeing companies really try to adapt to a virtual world, try to adapt to serving in omnipresent, very much like what we're seeing at Bed Bath & Beyond. this as the world shifts, this is really playing into the space of Twilio, their services, their messaging services, their now email service that after the SendGrid acquisition, voice, video, chat, partnerships with WhatsApp and Facebook Messenger. So seeing a lot of growth in those areas where people are spending a lot more time in their communication. That's really benefiting Twilio and it showed today or showed this week when they updated their guidance. Ron talked about the market not being cheap overall. You look at shares of Twilio, they've nearly tripled in the past 12 months. Um, What kind of expectations should you have if you're just thinking about buying shares now? Yeah, a lot. I mean, so it's now the price at more than 26 times sales. Stocks at an all-time high. Um, they are certainly executing in their t- like that SendGrid acquisition that they made, which actually boosted up their balance sheet. That's one thing that we we're, we've been a little bit hesitant at on on Tom's team over the discovery landscape. Just as the balance sheet gets bigger and bigger with um, with some of their acquisitions, now they have of of their assets of their total assets, half of it is in goodwill intangibles, and that's that's a little bit of a warning sign to to watch, but. They really are executing. The stock has really had a very nice run. There's certainly a lot of growth baked into the Twilio story, but Jeff Lawson and his team um, so far are executing, I think, above expectations. 
I read this morning that Microsoft was entering at least partially into the Twilio space. So be careful when the big boys come a knock in, you know, it's going to be, it's going to be a battle there. Microsoft's got a behemoth balance sheet can, can go in many different areas, obviously very well run company. It'll be interesting to see if the more nimble Twilio um, can stave off uh, the bigger uh, behemoth yeah, you don't, Microsoft. And, and, yeah. You don't want to bet against those who are really focused in that one space. Coming up, should investment bankers start worrying about the fact that more companies are going public without an IPO? Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here with Andy Cross and Ron Gross. Shares of Pepsi up a bit this week. Third quarter sales grew 5%. Ron, Pepsi is obviously hurt by the fact that restaurants and entertainment venues are closed to such a large degree, but the snacks are helping to keep the business afloat. Exactly. This was this was a fine quarter. Um, you know, I'm not, I'm not jumping up and down, but really nothing wrong with it. There was a rebound in soda sales, which was was nice to see. But as you mentioned, increased demand for snacks keeps the business really really growing. Uh, overall net revenue up five percent, but Frito Lay North America up seven percent. Um, interestingly, higher demand for breakfast foods led to a six percent rise at the Quaker Foods business, so that also helped business a bit. Uh, the beverage business still up six percent, which is stronger than we've seen recently. There's strength in Starbucks branded iced coffee, lower calorie versions of Gatorade and Mountain Dew, which sounds awful to me, but <laughs> you do you. Um, the restaurant business, as you said, um, still weak. So the strength in those other businesses um, helped to offset some of the declining restaurant business, which led to an increase in earnings per share of 10%, which is absolutely nothing to sneeze about in, in this type of environment. They did go back to full year guidance, uh, which were actually above expectations. So um, investors like to see that. Stock trading about 25 times right now, in line with Coke. Um, so no disparity really there, despite the fact that Pepsi has the snack business. And if that's not enough for you, they recently introduced their cheap. Cheetos mac and cheese, which doesn't sound good to me, but again, you do you. If that sounds good, you know, go for it. That was my favorite quote. Uh, uh, Hugh Johnston, the CFO, talked about how, and I'm quoting here, we're trying to keep up with the demand for Cheetos mac and cheese. So clearly that's helping to move the needle. Uh, this week, investors got more reminders that initial public offerings are not the only way companies can go public. Palantir, a data analytics business, and Asana, a software company, both went public on Wednesday through direct listening, uh, listings. Um, Andy, they're not issuing new shares to go public to raise capital. What is the thinking here? Because uh, you know we've sort of been trained to think you know you go public, it's an opportunity to raise money. Yeah, you go sometimes. Often you go public because you need the money. So 2020, um, the IPO market has really had this resurgence. It went through a freeze during the springtime, but now it's come roaring back. And um, there's now nearly 100 billion that's been raised. And by the end of the year, it'll eclipse what we did in 1999 and 2000. So traditionally, you. Use it, hire an investment bank, you're a business, you go through the roadshow, they call it, and you talk to institutional investors, and you try to drum up interest in your business to be able to issue shares on the public markets and go public. Well, now with the likes of Spotify and Slack, who really started it, and now Palantir and Asana Software, they're doing direct listings where you don't issue shares and you just go from a private company to a public company. You still work with an investment bank called a capital advisor, but it's less about issuing new shares and just 
just really providing liquidity for your insiders and your institutions who own shares, a lot of VC people, uh, investors, to basically have liquidity for their stock and be on the public markets. Um, so it's non-traditional, certainly, uh, but we've seen it now four times to somewhat mixed results. Palantir stock is below where IPO, where it went public the first day of trading. And that's the risk with direct listings, Chris, is there's not you don't have that support from the investment bank that charges those hefty fees to really bring a little bit of more um, order to a very chaotic process and drum up that business for the for the stock. Um, you don't have that in the direct listing. That's the risk. But if you can pull it off, it's far cheaper and it's more transparent and more equitable to buyers and, and sellers. I, I think one of the consequences of this, or maybe if I could predict how this shakes out down the road, is that you'll see investment banking fees compress. So they'll still make a fine amount of money. They'll still offer the services that are relatively important to companies, but it won't be as egregious as it is now. So it'll kind of be a win-win for the companies. The investment banks will still be able to, to, to make some money. Um, for the most part, I think uh, the direct listings is not going to be this big thing that overtakes the, the, the traditional IPO market. It, um, because it is mostly about raising capital, not about giving your existing shareholders liquidity. At least it shouldn't be. I'm not really typically interested in buying a company whose shareholders are trying to get out. So I, I think that's how it shakes. Yeah, and just some context there. Uh, typically, investment banks will charge somewhere between three and seven, maybe eight percent. Um, but with a direct listing, it's basically a flat fee. Um, that's the deal size, by the way. It's a flat fee, and like Slack paid um, twenty million or so dollars, and Spotify thirty-five million or so for their for their services to their capital advisors. So it's much cheaper. Shares of McCormick flat this week, despite third quarter profits and revenue coming in higher than expected. The spice maker also announced a two-for-one stock split. Ron, I know this is not a software-as-a-service business, so I guess I understand the market collectively shrugging its shoulders, but McCormick seems to be delivering. Yes, a solid quarter. The two-for-one stock split makes no sense. Whatever, it, it, it's it's an it's a non-issue. Fine, let 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 them do that. It's not not that important to the investment thesis. It's not important at all, in fact. But a solid quarter, sales up eight percent. Consumer segment is the one getting it done, up fifteen percent, reflecting continued consumer preferences for cooking at home. Uh, their flavor solution segment, which is their restaurant segment, obviously uh, lower demand um, from restaurants and food service customers. Uh, but the segment did improve sequentially as things open up. So, that, that was nice to see. Uh, adjusted operating uh, earnings earnings per share up about 5%, a, a nice quarter. They resumed guidance, looking at 4 to 5% revenue growth, which is the upper end of their previous range. Now, the stock's not that cheap. I love it. I know Jason Moser loves it. 34 times, let's be careful, they got to put up the growth to support that stock. All right, guys, we'll see you later in the show. Up next, Matthew Iglesias makes the case for growing America's economy by growing America's population. Stay right here. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. The ways in which any country goes about growing its economy is complicated, and there are a lot of variables that factor into making it happen. But if you ask Matthew Iglesias, he will tell you that one thing America needs to do to grow its economy is think bigger, much bigger. Iglesias is a journalist, one of the founders of the media site Vox, and author of the new bestseller, One Billion Americans, The Case for Thinking Bigger. Earlier this week, Motley Fool contributor Asit Sharma caught up with Matthew Iglesias. 
Here's part of that conversation. Let's start with the premise, which you lay out in the introduction. America is too small. Could you explain this concept to listeners, especially in the context of, you know, how you laid out in this um, almost adversarial relationship with two growing economic superpowers, China and India? I mean, you know, I don't, I don't even want to be too adversarial about it. But let's just say, for as long as I've been alive, for as long as you've been alive, for as long as anyone has been alive, America has been kind of the the number one country in the world. We've had the largest economy, uh, and therefore we've been a, a leader on the world stage. And that is threatened now. Um, it's great in so many ways that China's economy has grown over the past generation. It's had historic reductions in poverty. Uh, India has grown not quite as much, but but also quite a lot. And, and you know, really great things happening there. Uh, but it means that in purchasing power parity terms, China is now number one and we're number two. You know, in exchange rate terms, we're still ahead, but there's a lot of questions about that. Um, and so you see the Chinese market economically, uh, it's really big now. It's the biggest movie market in the world. And so there was a great report from PEN America about how uh, Chinese censors now dictate to Hollywood what they can put in their movies because they need access to that market there. And of course, you know, economic strength eventually becomes military strength, becomes diplomatic strength, becomes all kinds of other things like that. And so the proposition of my book, the thought is, well, should we accept this or should we think about how to change it, right? The only real way to change it is to grow our population. Uh, but that might be bad, right? You might think, okay, sure, with a billion Americans, uh, not tomorrow, but like ramping up to a billion over the course of the 21st century, uh, we could stay number one, but maybe terrible things would happen, right? And so the whole point of the book is to go through it and show like, no, terrible things wouldn't happen. We would still be a relatively sparsely populated country. We could actually solve a lot of problems about some of our declining heartland cities. Uh, we could be a more prosperous country. We could be a more dynamic country. We would have some challenges around traffic jams, other things like that, uh, but I think there's good solutions to those problems, which, which I lay out. And it's, it's trying to be an optimistic, solutions-oriented book about how if we, if we kind of take this challenge seriously, we can meet it, we can rise to it, and sort of get beyond this politics of like people yelling at each other over culture war differences and work on like what it takes to grow and expand and, you know, be the great country that I think Americans want us to be. Yeah, Matt, I really love how ambitious the book is and how you sort of strip away preconceptions that we have about this idea that we should be a more populous country or a much more populous country. Uh, start with one preconception I had. You talk about population density, and you mentioned that if we tripled the population in the lower 48 states, that would only take us to about 315-odd people per square mile, if I got the math right. Yeah. That's about as dense as France and less than half as dense as Germany. Now, I've had the chance to travel in Germany. It doesn't feel any different than the U.S. when you're there on the ground. Certainly, big cities are crowded, but you know, uh, Manhattan is crowded. The rural population in Germany feels very sparse, but so it does here. If I just go a couple of hours east to eastern North Carolina, it feels very sparse compared to where I am in Raleigh. I really was interested in this idea of densities versus relatively underpopulated areas. You feel that we have a chance to expand back into uh, rural areas and also 
uh, have growth that's a little bit smarter within the big cities. Can you mm-hmm. talk a little bit in, more in detail about these ideas? Yeah, so one thing that's striking is actually most of our rural counties at this point are losing population. Um, and almost all of them are losing working age population. Uh, and that's because, you know, for thousands of years, right, people have always left farms in the countryside to move to the big city. Uh, you know, that's that's just happened from time immemorial. But people used to have larger families, right? So if one or two kids did that, there were still two or three uh, sticking around in the farm. And and now that's not the case. And that's kind of sad, right? I mean, there's something, like small towns are great. Lots of people love them. Uh, lots of people like to live there. But when people want to live in a small town, they want to live in a thriving small town, right? They want a church that has members in it. They want a library that can stay open because people are paying taxes. They want, you know, a store, maybe a diner someplace, a school. But we have so much right now. I I think I I spend a fair amount of time in in rural Maine, and they are shutting schools down and combining them with the school in the next town over because they're running out of kids, right? And that's not what people want out of their rural community. Then we have big cities. St. Louis has lost 60% of its population. Detroit, about half. Cities like Philadelphia and Baltimore, you know, less than that, but still hundreds of thousands of people. And then there's an incredibly long list of smaller cities. Where they're talking about Grand Rapids, Akron, Toledo, Utica, Binghamton, uh, Bridgeport, right? That are down, you know, they're down 10,000 here, 10,000 there. And it creates a really uh, difficult situation for those kinds of places. You can't maintain your infrastructure when your population is shrinking. If you are paying pensions to cops and firefighters from an older city that used to exist with a smaller population base, you can't provide current services or you need to raise taxes more. But that just encourages more people to go to Nashville, to Austin, uh, to places that are growing. And there's nothing wrong with Nashville and Austin. Like, I really like those places too. (laughs) But how did we get into a place in America where we have this kind of zero-sum mentality where, you know, if Sunbelt cities grow, Rust Belt cities have to shrink, where if coastal cities are going to thrive, rural areas have to wither and die. And I don't think that's what anyone really wants out of the country, just like nobody wants us to become like number two to the Chinese. And uh, what I want to do in the book is like get people to, to take this seriously. Like, I, I think we want a growing country. I think we, we want to be number one. Uh, but our elected officials are not taking the challenge. I mean, it's basic math. It's a, it's a numbers game, right? If, you, if, you, if one city was depressed, if Detroit was the only city that had lost people, say, well, they must be doing something wrong there, right? They got to fix it. But if it's dozens of cities uh, all across the Midwest and the Northeast, right? It can't be, it's no one city's fault. It's not their problem. Cleveland, you know, I'm sure they've made their mistakes, but every similarly situated city is in the same situation. And like, we need more people to lift all these boats. Yeah, and I think that your answer is uh, not surprising. We have some things we can do with making the economics better for uh, people to start families and to raise children. And you talk about that in the book, but your big answer really is immigration. And so I do want to talk about this in, in, in the big picture, uh, what that means to dramatically increase immigration into the U.S. But while we're on this uh, topic of cities out in the heartland, out in uh, formerly industrial areas that are losing population, you've got some interesting proposals that might be able to open up or rejuvenate these cities. Uh, I'll, I'll name a couple. The National Renewal Visa, New Universities decentralizing the federal government. Uh, Which of these do you think is, or or of your ideas, 
is um, maybe the, the biggest or, or uh, most effective arrow in the quiver, you have a concept called the comeback city. <laughs> so to mm-hmm. bring population back to these cities. So I, I think this idea of new visas, which I got from the U.S. Conference of Mayors, uh, they, they endorse this proposal. So I, it should be more widely discussed. I mean, everybody should buy my book, to be clear. Uh, but, 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 <laughs> but, but, but this idea is out there. Uh, people just aren't talking about it. It's to say, look, um, you know, some people don't like immigrants. I don't know. I, I disagree with them, but it is what it is. Uh, but if a city someplace says, okay, we have lost population, uh, we would like more immigrants to come here. Let's create a mechanism for them to sponsor extra visas for youngish, educated people to come in and go. Because you look at things like the H-1B lottery, right? Mm-hmm. It's so oversubscribed. So many more people who qualify for those visas want them that can actually get them. So let's create, so that's for a sort of skilled technology workers. You get one of those, you work for a few years for a specific company that sponsored you. That's great. It's a good program. But let's create a new program for similarly qualified people and say, okay, there's a city, right, that sponsors you and and you go live there. And so then we could have things like Right now, a lot of IT work gets outsourced to Infosys, and they go and they do it in Bangalore, right? But maybe they could open an office in Binghamton, right, and bring people there because they like to bring people over to the U.S. Their workers are more productive that way. Then they come in, right, and it's customers for local businesses. It's a shot in the arm to the local tax base. Some people will just leave uh, when when their visa expires, but some people will stick around because, you know, you put down roots in a community and and there it is. And you see it with refugee resettlement all the time. A bunch of uh, Somali refugees were settled in in a town called Lewiston, Maine, uh, which is it's a long way from Somalia. Uh, It's it's very different. Um, But, and you know, they're free to move at this point, but a lot of them stay because there's cultural institutions there and it's really revitalized the city, right? Which um, you compare it to other sort of paper mill towns in Maine and it's doing so much better because it's gotten these extra people. It has something a little unique. It has a different mix of service businesses. There's a lot of opportunities there. So we could do that for so many places in this country. Um, And it's just, we're basically leaving an opportunity on the table, right? Like we know people are clamoring to come in here and yet we have a politics that's dominated by sort of paranoia about it rather than asking how can we turn this to our advantage? What about the environment, Matt? Uh, All these solutions sound Mm. so great. How can we do this and not have a negative impact on the environment? You know, I think you have to think about this in a few different ways, right? One is that, you know, in a world of a changing climate, it's going to impact every country. It's going to impact everybody. Uh, But the places where it has the biggest impact is actually in the developing world, right? You know, a Bangladesh, a Nicaragua, a Nigeria faces much more serious problems with this than the United States does, right? And so to the extent that people are able to come to, I don't know, Minneapolis, right? uh, We're actually adapting to the climate change problem in a useful way. And so being resistant to migration makes the problem worse, not better. Uh, Now, also, it's true, right? More people is more stuff, uh, more consumption. and, And there is an ecological burden there. That being said, the trajectory that we're on is like, it's simply not sustainable, right? Like either we can develop, for some things, we have technologies that work, uh, electrification, and like, we just need to do it. For other things, we don't. There is no zero carbon way to make steel and concrete right now. Um, That's a big problem because we're not gonna have a world with no buildings. Uh, Like we can find a solution to that, 
in which case we're golden, no matter how many people there are, or we cannot find a solution to it, in which case we're in a bunch of trouble, right? And like the people are gonna be somewhere, any place. Uh, most of the world's emissions are outside the United States. The best way we can contribute to solving a global problem is to really focus on developing and deploying those new technologies that can save us. The book is One Billion Americans, The Case for Thinking Bigger. It is available everywhere. Up next, Andy Cross and Ron Gross come back with a couple of stocks you might want to put on your watch list, so do not touch that dial. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here with Andy Cross and Ron Gross. Guys, some quick restaurant news. It was a little over a year ago that Popeye's chicken sandwich caused a sensation, helping to drive revenue higher for Popeye's parent company, Restaurant Brands International. And the next innovation is already in the works. The website Food Beast reports that Popeyes has been testing chocolate-filled beignets at locations in Massachusetts as the company gears up for a nationwide launch. Andy, the chicken sandwich wasn't enough to get me to go to Popeyes. I think this is going to do it. Why Massachusetts, Chris? I mean, beignets... Popeyes, Louisiana. I'm not quite sure I get the Massachusetts store angle to it, but beignets and chocolate. I mean, anyone who has been down to to Narlands and uh, and gotten the beignets down there, Cafe du Monde. I mean, like those are just fantastic. So I like that combination. Could it be better than the chicken sandwich? Don't know, but it uh, it it is awfully tempting. It'll be interesting. Yeah, I think the testing in Massachusetts was they assumed they had Louisiana locked up. <laughs> Probably so maybe, true. Maybe go Probably elsewhere. Probably true. I, I will say, uh, if, a pic- if a picture does speak, the picture's pretty appetizing. Meanwhile, in Ireland, the Supreme Court ruled this week that sandwiches made by Subway contain too much sugar to legally be considered bread. And that's funny, but humor aside, the ruling has actual financial consequences since it means franchisees will have to pay a value-added tax of 9%. Andy, that's real money. I mean, this is a tax story, right? Like, I mean, this is this is Ireland going out there saying, "Hey, this is a great way to get a little bit of tax money. Like, let's go after Subway's bread because it's not actually bread." Um, so that I read this as a real as a as a way to to take a little bit of a high horse and get some tax revenue at the same time. Is the recipe different overseas than it is here? It seems like bread to me. It's bread-ish, but I think you know, I you know, you can get some really good bread in Ireland. Our man behind the glass, Dan True. Boyd, uh, was over there a couple of years ago. He can speak to the the quality of the bread in Ireland. Uh, maybe that'll come up when we get to the stocks on our radar. So let's <laughs> do that now. Uh, Ron Gross, you're up first. Dan's going to hit you with a question. What are you looking at this week? 
I've got Union Pacific, UNP. They operate Union Pacific Railroad, one of the two largest railway networks in the U.S., operate 23 U.S. states across the western two-thirds of the U.S. They've got a strong, durable competitive advantage, as railroads typically do, giving it stability and pricing power. Increased efficiency has given them strong net margins. Management has done a really fine job navigating the coronavirus pandemic, which unfortunately, um, you know, across the board has significantly impacted results, but demand has increased recently due to growing e-commerce volumes. They've paid dividends for 121 consecutive years, and the yield stands at 2%. Dan, question about Union Pacific? Absolutely. So, Ron, is that is that a ragtime I hear in the background there? Is is Charles Lindbergh some sort of celebrity at the moment? I'm pretty sure this is the 2020s and not the 1920s, and you're talking about railroads? I didn't hear a question in there, but listen, you got to move stuff from place to place. There's intermodal, which is, you know, you use two different types, at least of, of, of ways to transport things across the country. And this is one of them. I want to make sure I heard that correctly, Ron. They've been paying a dividend for 120 years, 121 consecutive years. Pretty cool. Andy Cross, what are you looking at this week? I'm looking at Rocket Companies, symbol RKT, the home to Quicken Loans and Rocket Mortgage. Uh, Rocket is the largest mortgage originator in the U.S., originate bundles and sells home loans. Founded in 1985 by Dan Gilbert out of Detroit, went public at, in August at about $18 per share. Today, it's around 22 hit a high of 31 came pulled back. Served 9%, Dan, of the U.S. home mortgage market. So, those who are looking to refi or looking to get a home mortgage, Rocket Mortgage may be be a good place to check out. The goal is to get 25% of the $2 trillion U.S. market eventually. Very high retention rates. 75% of their clients who used them before use them again. High net promoter scores really in, uh, started and continue to innovate in the end-to-end digital uh, mortgage business. And um, It's a business that I continue to watch, and I think it has some real nice prospects to it. It uh, came out from the IPO price um, in, a, in a way that I think led investors investors to say, hey, this is a really interesting business, but it's cyclical, Dan. Finance companies, mortgage, housing, very cyclical. So, we got to watch to see businesses doing very well right now. Growth is exceptionally high, but can they sustain it for the long term? That's the question I want to know. Dan, question about rocket companies? Certainly. Rocket has always been lauded as like the company for the younger generations to get mortgages because they're all online and everything. Uh, are, is that actually true? Are, are they servicing mostly younger people's mortgages? Yeah, well, it is definitely true. Younger people are a big part of that market. Um, and the nice thing about about Rocket is they're so efficient um, uh, on a loans per month per team member. They're more almost triple the national average, and that's been even better in 2020. So they're very effective in their in servicing and originating those mortgages. And I think uh, as more and more people, especially young people, look to get mortgages, I think that's a, a market that's really ripe for Rocket companies. Certainly. What do you want to add to your watch list, Dan? Uh, well, choo-choo, Chris, because 121 <laughs> years of dividend payouts is extremely compelling. I'm going awesome. with Union Pacific. <laughs> All right, Andy Cross, Ron Gross. Guys, thanks for being here. Thanks, fellas. That's going to do it for this week's edition of Motley Fool Money. Our engineer is Dan Boyd. Our producer is Matt Creer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. 